mysteries today, uh, Easter 2017, myth, mystery, or miracle. Uh, and as I said, the Easter story often is just assumed to be true. And, uh, but people don't often think it through. And there are times in life when we, when we do, but most of the time we don't. Uh, this past Sunday, I happened to be doing a, a funeral and was reminded uh, again every time I do a funeral uh, how important the Easter story is. And when I say Easter, I'm talking about the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead in history. This is what we mean when we say Easter, the events of the, of the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's when we use this term. It's not a term uh, that's even found in the Bible. The word Easter you won't find there except uh, in the King James Version. I believe it's Acts chapter 12 and verse 4. Uh, you will see the word Easter there, but it's actually, uh, it should read Passover there, but they translated it Easter. You will, so you won't see it in the, in the Bible per se, but this is what I mean when I refer to Easter, just so you know, okay? And we're going to start at the very, very beginning and work our way to Easter, uh, because if you, don't, if you don't start at the beginning, you're, you're going to have issues with belief over time. Um, and we're going to start with the idea of where did the, did the Bible even come from? The, the story of Easter and the, the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, this comes from the pages of the Bible. You're going to find very little about this in the history books. You'll find a little bit. You'll find the, the explosion of the church uh, and you'll have to try and figure out, well, why did that happen? Uh, why did the church grow? How did it start? But to, to try and come up with some sort of eyewitness testimony about the life of Jesus and his death and his resurrection beyond the Bible, you will not be able to do this. So if you do not understand where the Bible came from or you do not trust the Bible, you're going to have a really hard time with the Easter story. So you've got to know first and foremost uh, where it came from. If you don't, Again, and you just accept the story in, in faith, there's going to be times in your life where your faith is going to be challenged. And do you have enough in your tank to hold tight to the things that you believe? When you understand where the Bible came from, you're going to have a little bit more in your tank. It's going to increase your faith. It's going to increase your understanding. And you'll be able to hold on to the things that you believe even when uh, life gets difficult. Um, and this is why it's so important to understand where the Bible even came from in the first place, and many people don't know. By the way, uh, we'll often do uh, Q&A at the end, uh, so if you have questions that you want to raise uh, and you're thinking about it during the message, please, please, at the end, we're going to take that, and I'll take the questions live. Even if you have questions that are antagonistic or hostile, I don't care. It's all right. You can ask them. All right, I didn't write the Bible, uh, but I think I can answer your question. So please uh, come with whatever questions that you have. Uh, even if you know friends and people who you talk to and they, you've heard their questions, you have no answer, well, bring that question to, to the floor and we can take a look at it together, okay? Uh, so we want to answer this question basically today. Where did the Bible uh, even come from? On the screen, that's an interesting picture. That's uh, what they call Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, and this is a Greek a translation of the Old Testament and some of the New Testament 
uh, that you can now look at online, actually. But we'll get into some of that stuff later. I want to give you in, in pretty fast succession uh, 10 key points about the Bible. Relax. You don't have to take notes if you don't want to. Some of you, you take your, your phone out and you take pictures of the screen. You can do that if you want to. But if you need this PowerPoint, I would be happy to email it to you. Just come and see me. And uh, I, I have no problem doing that for you at all. So you don't have to race uh, to take notes. The Bible, first and foremost, boldly proclaims to be the inspired word of God. It, it makes no, no, it pulls no punches on this truth. It boldly proclaims to be the inspired word of God. I was having a discussion uh, actually a few years ago with a Muslim neighbor of mine, a little more of a strict Muslim. I have some on one side who are a lot more secular in their beliefs, but this one's a little more strict. And uh, I was talking to him, and he found out who I was and what I do and everything. And, and uh, he, he said that he believes that the Quran is the inspired word of God. And I said, why? And he said, well, because I have a relative who is able to memorize word for word the entire Quran. And that would be impossible unless there was something supernatural about the book. And I said to him, Wow, so that's, that's how you say that it's the Word of God. Well, if I, if I memorize a comic book, does that make it the Word of God? And he didn't really, the conversation didn't go much further after that. Uh, but the Bible boldly proclaims from cover to cover to be the inspired Word of God. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed. That's the term. God breathed is used there and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God breathed. So the idea is that though the human writers had their own personalities and their own occasions for writing, God oversaw the whole process. And every single word of Scripture is inspired in the sense that God oversaw this process. And God is speaking clearly to humanity using these human writers. It does not mean that they went into some sort of trance and they started writing and they couldn't control what they were writing. It does not mean that at all. It does not mean that everything that you read in the Bible, uh, it, because it's the inspired word of God, that we say, okay, well, God approves of everything that has taken place in some of these stories. I mean, you're going to read stories of people's transgressions and their sins and all these things as part of the inspired word of God. It doesn't mean that God approved of their behavior. It means he records their behavior for us for a greater purpose. Uh, but this is the idea uh, in the scripture. Second Peter chapter 1, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture, and we will talk about that over the series, came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin uh, in the human will, but the prophets, uh, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along, nice phrase there, carried along by the Holy Spirit, the idea of inspiration. And this is a bold proclamation in the Bible. We will test this claim over the next few weeks that we, we have together. Uh, number two, uh, the content of Scripture is often not known uh, to people. We're not talking about a book. When we say the Bible, 
the word doesn't even appear in the Bible, the word Bible. Bible is a word that means books. It's a collection of books. And there's a lot of books in there. Does any of you know how many? It's 66. Not 666, okay? Uh, but there's 66 books in the Bible. 66. There's 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. And we have those words, Old Testament and New Testament. Those are fancy words. Basically, they mean the arrangement that God had with his people. Uh, and they're written in, in, um, in different languages as well. We'll get to that in a second. But we're talking about a range of like 1500 BC to around 100 AD. It covers a large span of time, uh, these, the, these books that are collected that we call uh, the Bible. So we're not talking about a small little thing here. We're talking about a big, big range uh, in terms of content. In languages, the Bible was not written uh, in English. The Bible wasn't written in French. Uh, the Bible was written in, in Hebrew. Most of the Old Testament is in Hebrew. There are little chunks of it in Aramaic. And the New Testament was written in the common Greek of uh, of two millennia ago. Do any of you speak these languages? Any of you speak Hebrew? Any of you speak Aramaic? Any of you speak Greek? All right. Well, you're at a disadvantage right away because you don't even speak the languages that the Bible was written in. Okay. Uh, Aramaic even is a very, it's a dead language. Uh, the only Aramaic uh, the modern culture has seen is in uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, which has Aramaic in it. Okay. Uh, so it's not written in modern languages. It's written in these ancient languages. That's another thing. And there's pictures on the screen that you'll see there uh, of Hebrew and, and Greek. And um, those are the languages that are used um, in the scripture. Now, uh, another idea that you need to know about is the idea of canonicity or the canon of scripture as we use in, in, in theological terms. This means, well, what, what's part of the Bible and what isn't part of the Bible? And, and how do we, how do we in, interpret this and how do we recognize this? Uh, and the Bible is a collection of literature. And it was recognized as being inspired by those people who were in some type of authority um, to do so. But they followed some pretty careful uh, guidelines. Um, and, and we'll get into these as we unpack the series more. Uh, but you want to talk about divine inspiration. Uh, what is inspired by God and what isn't. Uh, and the, the canon was more or less determined around 200, 300 A.D. Uh, but it wasn't sort of a bunch of guys sat in a room and said, well, we think this is part of the Bible and we don't think this is. And, you know, let's draw straws and figure it out. Um, any of you ever see the movie or read the book, The Da Vinci Code? Well, The Da Vinci Code has some really amusing theories about how the Bible was collected. Uh, none of them have any bearing on history, uh, much to Dan Brown's chagrin. Uh, but the idea of something being inspired, you, you've got to be able to test the literature. Does it have a supernatural quality to it? Does it have any kind of prophetic sense? Does it predict something that happens? Uh, is it recognized by people? Who's the human author? Did they have any contact with Jesus? Uh, and these are the kinds of questions that we ask when we try to determine what should be scripture and what isn't. 
so it wasn't a simple process, but it wasn't a bunch of people who were standing around in a room and made frivolous decisions, okay? Uh, the, ultimately, the question is answered by Jesus himself. And what Jesus accepted as scripture and what Jesus promised in the pages of the New Testament is where we get our ultimate answer. Uh, not on the opinion of men, but on the opinion of Jesus himself. And we'll unpack that over time uh, in the weeks ahead. The transmission of the scripture is important for you to understand. There was no printing press when the Bible was being written, when these books of the Bible were being written, there's no press to copy them. There's no modern technology. You're talking about things written by hand on the, on the skins of animals with rather crude uh, uh, utensils. And it was copied by hand. And the people who copied the scripture had very detailed uh, um, systems of copying them. They're almost bizarre when you learn about them. They had formulas to determine which letter was the center of the page. They had to wash themselves ceremonially whenever they would write the name of God in the Old Testament. They're really obsessive systems uh, of copying the scripture. And that's because they took it. Uh, so seriously, and this is how we, this is what we find when we dig into the into the rocks. We find these these manuscripts that these people have written uh, because they hand tra transcribed them in very very meticulous ways. And in the modern era, uh, they were printed very fast. Uh, the Bible is the first book uh, to ever be printed on the modern printing press. In 1455, uh, again, relatively modern in the modern era, in the Gutenberg Press, uh, this was the first, the first book that was ever printed. Uh, I've got a picture of the Gutenberg Bible in the back, but you are quick on the draw there, uh, Justin. The first book ever printed on the printing press, that's a Latin Vulgate. It's in Latin, and they often uh, illuminated the words. The artists would paint these, these things around the words of the text. Uh, and that's in 1455. So there was a prominence to get the message out uh, even, even by that time. In terms of the accuracy of these manuscripts, and again, we'll unpack this a little more uh, next week. But when you look at it, there's actually an astounding amount of evidence that the copies that we have in our hands are very true to the originals. And this is a key point for you to understand. Uh, for example, you've got uh, uh, thousands of copies of the, the New Testament, to, like or over 5,000, and a copy can be a little scrap, and I'll show you some scraps at the end of the, of the message today, or it can be a large collection of the books of the New Testament. We've got thousands and thousands of these things that we have found in the rocks. And they start appearing very, very early. That is highly unusual. You don't have a document in the ancient world that has that kind of attestation. Where you've got copies that are hitting the shelves, as it were, very, very, very fast. You do not see this. You do not see them appear that fast. You do not see them appear in that volume. But in the case in particular of the New Testament, you have a vol volumes and volumes of copies of, these, of, of this document. So this is quite a, an amazing thing in terms of accuracy. So it builds a case that it, in particular the pages of the New Testament have been passed down to us in an accurate fashion. In the case of the Old Testament, 
uh, we, we're not as lucky. So in the case of the Old Testament, the manuscripts that we have, the oldest ones in the Hebrew language are like 800, 900 AD. That's, that's relatively new. Uh, until we found a key piece of information in the 40s, the famous Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've heard of these things. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are really, really important find because we have copies of the Old Testament that shoot way back, some of them as old as 200, 100 BC. And that bridges this huge gap of time that we had to try and see is the Old Testament even transcribed to us in an accurate fashion or there errors that have crept up all over the place. Well, we have some archaeological support uh, in the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I remember when they brought them to, uh, I think it was Toronto, I went to see the Dead Sea Scrolls and, you know, stood in front of some of these amazing, I mean, you're talking about, you're talking about scraps of papyrus that are like 2,000 years old, and you're reading the text of the Old Testament that we preach out of uh, in churches. So even in the case of the Old Testament, we have grounds to say that we've got accurate We've got an accurate Bible on our hands, okay? And I'll show you that uh, in, a, in a few minutes. Why do we have it today, though? Why do you even have a copy of the Scripture today? Why do you, you can pull it up on your phone? I think the, the ancient writers of Scripture, if they saw us today, they would likely, they would likely pass out. Uh, wouldn't be able to even comprehend that these things that they work their whole lives on, you know, I mean, even for someone to have a full Bible in the ancient world, if they could read, was rare. And, you know, to have it, you're carrying around a huge thing like this in one language. And today on your little phone, you can have 60, 70 languages in an instant of the entire Bible. I mean, the ancient writers would literally have passed out if they could see the time that we now live in. Um, but the reason why we have it today, and this is, this is really the key point that you're going to learn today, is because people thought that it was important for us to get it. And this is the idea of missions. This is the idea of taking the message of Easter the message that Jesus came, Jesus died, and Jesus rose from the dead, on which the whole Christian faith hangs, on which the whole Bible hangs. I mean, if Easter didn't happen, then there's no need for the redemption of humanity. If there's no need for the redemption of humanity, the whole Old Testament is out the window. The people thought that this message needed to be taken to the world. It needed to be put in the languages of the commoner, and it needed to be taken to the entire world. This is the idea of missions and taking the thing and translating it into another language. By the year 2000, there's still, at least the time this slideshow was made, uh, about 3,000 people groups that have not heard and do not have the Bible uh, in their own language. But when you look at the stats of modern translations, they're quite astounding. Uh, by 200 uh, AD, you've got the, the scripture translated into seven languages, by 513 languages, by 917 languages, by 1,428 languages. This is all by hand up to this point. Uh, by 1,857 languages, by 1,900, 537 languages, 1980, 1,800, 
And currently, at least at the time that this was done, that these stats were made, about 1,700 languages in progress. Wow. Why this desire to translate the thing in hundreds and thousands of languages? Wow, something powerful must have happened 2,000 years ago for these people to have this drive to constantly get the message out, and it transcends even to the modern era, even to today. doesn't prove that the Bible is true, but it shows, wow, there's something quite dynamic that happened in people's lives that they wanted to get the message out, and that's really why we have the Bible today, even in the Western world. It's because of the movement of missions, we'll use that term, to try and get the message to the masses around the world. How did we get the Bible? Uh, just a simple, simple uh, drawing and sketch there. You've got the originals, which no one has, uh, the originals are inspired, the originals are infallible, the originals are inerrant, and guess what? The originals are lost. And I think if anyone claims to have found an actual original autographer, that's the term we use of the scripture, it would be highly, highly challenged. And these things were, were lost over time. We do not have them. Say, well, how can we not have the originals and yet we're holding the Bible in our hands? Well, as we said before, because the Bible was copied very, very, very quickly. And uh, we have these things called uh, manuscripts is a technical term. Some of them start very, very early, especially in the case of the New Testament. They're in many different languages and those copies are about 99.5% pure to the original. That is an astounding fact. When you talk about ancient literature, astounding. So I'll give it to you this way in this kind of an example. If I had you uh, copy out by hand one page of the shortest book of the Bible, just one page of it, and I gave you an assignment to copy it out by hand and hand it in to me, you know, in half an hour, you would give me all of your all of your handwritten copies, and guess what? In almost every single copy that you give me there's going to be a slight mistake. Very, very slight. You might write one word twice. You might write one letter twice. You might forget a word. You might forget a letter. It's going to be very, very slight. And if I lost the original, my job would be, oh boy, I got, you know, 35 handwritten copies of this thing. I lost the original and now I got to recompose the original out of these 35 copies. Guess what? That's what people have to do. And that's how they rebuild and say, listen, the original must have said this in this particular question that we have. And we don't have that many questions. We've got, we've got manuscripts that are about 99.5% accurate to the original. And if you have any questions, it's, well, where did this phrase go? Or is this in this particular text? Or should it be somewhere else? There's nothing that affects major doctrine. They're all little technical things. That is an astounding reality, and it gives us a lot of confidence that what we're reading is, in fact, the actual Bible preserved for us. But that's what these people who translate have to do. They have to look at all these manuscripts and say, all right, what did the original say in this particular case where we have this particular uh, question? You tracking with me so far? Not too hard? All right, okay. And then you have these modern uh, translations, which we have. 
They're in our languages. They're numerous. They're made from all of these manuscripts that we found from all over the place. And this is basically how we got this collection of books that we call the Bible. I'm going to show you a diagram on the screen, a picture. And here you have it. And that's how you got it. And now you can go home. All right, so if you start on the left-hand side, and you don't have to be able to read this, okay? I'm just going to show it to you uh, in, in big form. Just back up one slide, Justin. Okay, so if you start on the left side, uh, there it says the, the original manuscripts that range from 1500 to 100 AD. And then you've got these early copies, then you've got ancient copies, then you've got ancient versions, and then you've got everything that moves its way to the right. And down at the bottom there, you have the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and other newly discovered manuscripts that are quite, quite ancient. And that's how it makes its way all the way to the right-hand side. And you and I are way, way, way on the right. In fact, we're off the screen uh, because very few people are reading the new Revised Standard Version, which was released in 1990. A lot of people are reading versions that have come out after the year 2000. But they all do the same thing in general. They all try and feed off of what's on the left-hand side of that screen. And they have to pick and choose what they want to use, but that's what they're doing uh, in terms of, of composing the Bible. So starting with the original manuscripts, if you flip to the next one, uh, so that's from uh, 1500 BC to 100 AD, uh, AD, roughly. And this is covering all of this time. This is when all these documents were written. You've got 40 plus authors from all these different walks of life, you know, teachers and prophets and, and uh, you know, all kinds of different people. And so this is the scope from which they write from about 1500 BC uh, to 100 AD. And that is the autographer. That is the Bible. And of course, it's lost. Uh, then you have the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we found. We found them in the 40s and they're old, old, old. I, I've sat in front of some of these old manuscripts and I mean, you get chills down your spine uh, looking at it because you, you look at the text and, and it says the same thing. It says the same thing as what we read out of our modern uh, Bibles today. And over time, we keep digging up these little manuscripts. And these are gold for people who are into this sort of thing and for archaeologists. And there could be a tiny, tiny little scrap which unlocks a door and answers a question uh, about the Bible in, in living color. So those are very, very old, very, very important. They can range as old as 250 years before Jesus was even born. And then you have them starting to be copied. And you've got three uh, texts on the screen there, uh, these three different codexes. I showed you a picture of one right at the beginning. And these are like, uh, you know, A.D. 425, 340, 330. And these things are in Greek. They translated the, the text of the Old Testament into Greek into the common language uh, of the day uh, 2,000 years ago. And we can see the text there. That's pretty old, but you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls are older, but those things are very, very important finds for us because some of those contain major, major parts uh, of the Bible. The one, uh, the last one on the screen there, uh, uh, Sinaiticus, if I'm pronouncing it right, that you can actually read online now. Uh, if you just Google that, you, it'll take you right there and you can see the actual manuscript. It's quite astounding uh, when you can see the thing online. And then you've got ancient copies that start coming out and they start copying this information over and over again. They're old. 
uh, relatively speaking. Um, and then you have different versions in different languages. So in Latin, in Syriac, in, in Egyptian, in different languages, they start uh, hitting the presses, as it were, even though you have no printing press uh, at that time. Uh, a couple of major English ones that are important for you to know. Uh, remember the name Wycliffe, okay? Uh, Wycliffe, in 1380, that's when he lived, he came out with the, the first English Bible that he translated from Latin. This is a very, very important thing because it relates to you and I. We read the thing in English. Uh, he translated it in 1382. It's called the Wycliffe Bible in honor of uh, John Wycliffe. There's a page on the screen from his Bible uh, that he made. And Wycliffe was a really important guy um, because he wanted the Bible to be translated into the common language of the people. He wanted the Bible to not only be read by priests and clergymen who read Latin, he wanted it to be read in whatever language the people, the commoner, could read it in. And he wanted to translate it into English. He was a precursor to the, 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 the people involved in the Protestant Reformation, which we'll get into in a second. And he criticized a number of church practices and a number of church policies at the time in the Church of England. And this got him into a lot of trouble. Uh, he, his followers were called lollards, which means mumblers. And uh, they, in, his Bible actually includes the criticisms that he had in its preface uh, of the church. And he criticized the priesthood. He criticized the practices of indulgences, much like the Protestant reformers would do a couple of hundred years later. And it got him into a lot of trouble. In 1408, uh, the Church of England uh, made it illegal to translate or read uh, the Bible in common English without the permission of a bishop. You say, how can the church do that? Well, that's the way that it was. And the church controlled everything. Uh, everything was controlled by them, and they had their ways. And the idea that the commoner could have access to the Bible and interpret and read and apply the Bible themselves in their language was completely offensive to the church at the time. And I say that with great sadness, but that's the truth. And they banned this idea without the permission of a bishop. So his Bible was banned, and in 1415... Uh, his Bible was banned and burned uh, 40 years after Wycliffe's death in 1428. They exhumed his bones and burned them for heresy. I know that sounds very, very shocking to you, but that was the time when the church was just off the rails in terms of its understanding of God's word. And this man essentially gave his life so that the Bible could be translated into the language of the commoner. And in his particular case, English. So he's a very, very significant figure uh, in terms of how we got the Bible today. Another uh, fellow for you to know is Tyndale. And in 1525, he came up with the Tyndale Bible. 
And he used a, a little bit different manuscripts. He used the ancient Greek and the Hebrew and the Vulgate as well. And uh, he uh, uh, translated the New Testament uh, from Greek into English. He was a, a priest and a scholar at Oxford. But of course, he couldn't get the Bible published in English without the approval of the church right and uh, there's a picture of Tyndale there and this is a picture of his Bible from uh, 1525 his New Testament look how thick it is I mean would you like to carry that around uh, in your knapsack okay uh, but that's his Bible and again a very very significant uh, individual and same kind of thoughts as the reformers of the Protestant Reformation so basically in the in the 16th century you have a group of people you might know Martin Luther's name very well and these are people who said no the way that the church is going about these things is wrong and uh, they protested the idea of paying indulgences uh, to a priest so that you could be forgiven of your sin they protested the idea that you were saved by all this other work that you had to do on top of the cross and they and they were very forceful about it uh, one uh, movie that you can watch that covers that period of time is called Amazing Grace about the story of William Wilberforce. Uh, and you will see a little bit of the reformers in that whole thing and their thoughts uh, in that whole thing uh, where he challenged the slavery movement. Um, but anything that you can see or read about Luther, uh, which is really back in the 16th century, is going to help you understand the mentality and these are people who essentially gave their lives for the idea that, hey, the Bible should be in the language of the people. God wants to speak to his people. It shouldn't just be the priesthood. It shouldn't just be in Latin. And people are saved by grace through faith, not by all this other stuff. And wow, that, that's how you have this divergence from the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church and the whole Protestant Reformation, well, these, these kinds of people, Wycliffe and Tyndale, they were of that type of thought. Uh, another significant translation for you is uh, the King James in 1611. This used uh, some of the ancient manuscripts as well. It went all the way back uh, to try and use some of the older stuff. It's an excellent, excellent version, but it's got a lot of, you know, 17th century English in it, right? A lot of these and thous and all this kind of stuff, and it's really, really hard to read uh, for modern people today, but it's a very, very significant version nonetheless. Uh, the RSV in 1952, they had the luxury of, hey, the, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls now, and we found some of these old manuscripts that were in uh, that period uh, or in that find. Uh, in the Dead Sea, in the caves of Qumran. So we, they, were, they were able in the RSV to go way back to that little chunk on the lower left-hand side because, aha, they found it. And that, that's a very, very significant version. And all the, all the modern versions afterwards have the luxury of that particular find uh, in the 40s in terms of how we got the Bible. Let me show you some pictures on the screen uh, to give you an idea. You can't read any of that. I can't even read it. It's, it's uh, so far away. But that's a, a fragment from the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, found from the first century. Uh, the, when they ever come anywhere near Montreal, I always want to go and see the exhibit and stand in front of these things. Uh, the next slide is a really cool one. 
that's a very, very small piece of silver, uh, an amulet there that has the oldest, 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 little, little chunk of the Old Testament that's ever, ever been found. It dates to the 7th century B.C., Oh my, so we're talking like 2,600 years ago, and this is a little passage from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. Some of you know this passage, the Lord bless you and keep you, and, uh, and the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. It's often cited, and that's the little thing, a small little piece of silver like this, and it's in ancient uh, paleo uh, Hebrew, and that's what it says. 26, 2700 years old. Amazing, amazing find. I'm pretty sure they found it uh, in Qumran amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. The next slide, uh, also found in the same place, is uh, uh, the oldest surviving copy of the book of Deuteronomy, a little chunk of Deuteronomy in Greek, uh, dates to about 100 years before Jesus' birth. Wow, amazing, amazing find. Again, this is a tiny little, tiny little thing that we find. But it helps us to understand where and how uh, we got the Bible. Uh, the next is a little, little fragment that's a very, very important find. It's got a lot of people looking at it nowadays, a lot of controversy, because there are many that say that this contains a little passage from Mark chapter 6, but the date of it is very, very early. Some scholars date it to around 50 with, with seriousness. That is a remarkable thing because if that's true, it means that the Bible was being copied that fast within the lifetime of the people who experienced the story of Jesus and the Easter story and the resurrection. The thing is being copied by hand that fast. Something remarkable must have happened for people to take it that seriously. What is that something? Well, we'll find out uh, in the weeks ahead, but that's a huge, huge find. Uh, the next one is a very important find, a little bit older, and even the liberal scholars will not dispute it. It contains parts of uh, John chapter 18, and it reigned, the date is 125 AD, which is still like very, very, very old. Again, the point being that the people were copying the, the pages of the New Testament by hand while they were still alive and still had witnessed the events in question, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They thought it was that important that they had to get this message out that fast. And we do not find this kind of thing. In ancient literature at all, we have to wait hundreds and hundreds of years before we start seeing copies of other things. But in the case of, <coughs> excuse me, the Bible, especially the New Testament, we see it happen really, really fast. Thus endeth the presentation for today. Are you still awake? All right, I hope you found it. I hope you found it interesting and you learned a few things, okay? Uh, this is why when, when I talk to people about the Bible, Please read other versions besides the version that you're reading. If you like the King James, that's great. Read the King James, but read another version, okay? In, in widen your scope of understanding of where the scripture came from and understand the people who paid the price so that you could get it. 
What's scary today is that very, very few Christians are actually reading it anymore. Very few. They read it rarely. They come to church and they hear a message. But are they really picking up the book and reading the book anymore? And people like George Barna are asking Christians questions, church-going Christians, questions about how often they read the Bible and what their knowledge is about the Bible. And it is really, really frightening, the answers that are coming out. We get it on our phone. We can get any version we want. We can get it sent to us, you know, by a drone uh, from some supplier in the U.S., But are we actually taking the time to read the book that people died for and that people said it's got to be in the languages of you and me so that anyone in the audience can actually pick it up, understand it, interpret it, and apply it to their lives? And this is a big, big question uh, for us today. If we really believe in Easter, we would be people who love the Scripture and who love to learn and who love to understand the scripture and apply it to our lives, okay? So I'm going to take uh, a couple of questions, if there are any, before we, we call uh, uh, the, the little, our little band to come up and play before we're finished. Is there anything that comes to your mind or perhaps a question you're dealing with with somebody as you're sharing your faith that we can tackle today? Yes, Paul. Yeah, and Paul's asking a question about the canon, really. Uh, There's many, many books uh, that are not included in, I'll say, the Protestant Bible or the 66 books of the Bible. Many, many books, there's hundreds of them from the ancient world that are not included. And he's mentioned some of them. Some of them are in a collection of literature called the Apocrypha, which you'll find in a Catholic Bible, or the Pseudepigrapha. Uh, which is a fancy word, uh, or, you know, if you read Dan Brown's uh, fiction, then you'll find other books there. And, and the idea is, well, why is it that some books are in the Bible and some aren't? And I'll go back to what I had said before. The ultimate answer beyond the idea of, okay, can we test the degree of inspiration of this thing? In particular, is, is it accurate in matters of history? So when it talks about people and culture and places, is it accurate or does it make mistakes? Uh, when it talks about God, it, 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 does it report the nature of God accurately? Does it line up with the other things that we, we understand and know about God uh, from the books that were accepted by, by the Jews? Uh, but, but ultimately, uh, what does Jesus have to say about it? And when we look at Jesus and we look at his understanding of the Old Testament, he basically canonizes the entire Old Testament for us. So he talks about the Psalms and the writings and the prophets, and these were what we call today the 39 books of the Old Testament, and he talks about these as being Scripture. Uh, When the Apostle Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed, he's not talking about the New Testament, he's talking about the Old Testament. So in our day, the 39 books of the Old Testament. Back then, they were divided a little bit differently, organized a little bit differently, but same content. So Jesus clearly believed that those things were the word of God. Uh, the books that you mentioned, Tobit and so forth, those are, those are post. Uh, uh, they, they come in a period of time after that particular chunk of the Old Testament that Jesus refers to as the word of God. 
So he doesn't mention them. Uh, he doesn't talk about them. He doesn't quote from them. So the question is, well, if Jesus doesn't accept them, should we? Uh, many of them are interesting literature. You know, you've got things with Jesus as a little boy taking some clay and, turn, and going like this and turning it into a bird and letting it fly and all these kinds of cute stories. And some of them are quite interesting and some of them have interesting history. Um, uh, a lot of them come from the period of, of um, what we call the intertestamental period. So between Malachi and Matthew, you could put it that way, you've got a 400-year period there of silence. Well, there's a lot of things being written at the time, and some of them are the books that you're referring to. Um, some of them refer to some important Jewish history. But if we don't have Jesus citing from them, if we don't have Jesus accepting them, that is a big factor, regardless of what they may say about him even. The big factor is, hey, wh where is Jesus in this equation? Okay. Now, in terms of the New Testament, he, Jesus, in a sense, promised that the New Testament would come. He promised that the apostles would teach and would, would bring this message forward. So in the New Testament, we want to look for, okay, who wrote the book? Is this a person who's an apostle or connected to an apostle? And we apply the same kinds of tests, okay? But, but the big one is, does it have a supernatural quality to it? If, does it have any kind of predictive prophecy in it? Can we test that prophecy? Can we see if it came true or not? That's a big, big thing. That's a big factor to look for. So I hope that answers your question somewhat. That's a canon question, okay? And it's a very good one. But these people did not get together in a little room and draw straws and say, no, this, this book we'll take and this book we won't take. 